0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful to gather together as your people to sit under it. So now, Father, we pray that you would. Uh, through your Son, by your Spirit, now cause us to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see many of your maskless faces this evening. It reminds me of when Paul said that we would see the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. So with that in mind, would you turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 2 chapter 3. Just kidding. I wouldn't do anything like that. Uh, Uh... That's such a youth pastor intro. I might have done that back in the day, but we're back to Acts. We're back to Acts. Uh, The last three weeks I think were really important for us to spend some time thinking through some complicated issues. Uh, But I was sure relieved this week to just open the Bible uh, and let God's Word guide the what, the when the how of what we are going to be thinking about this evening together. Uh, have you ever gotten so frustrated with something that you wanted to quit? Not necessarily because it was hard, like you, like you planned to run a marathon and then you decided running is hard and I don't like running. I'm not going to do this marathon. Uh, but maybe like, like a video game or something, there was a, there's a story of the 1980s uh, Atari game of E.T. Uh, the game wasn't intuitive at all. It frustrated anyone and everyone who played it. Uh, and the game uh, is largely blamed for killing the Atari system altogether. It was a frustrating game. Uh, maybe it's a putting together a baby crib. Uh, the crib, Graco, whoever made it, poorly labeled the thing. Uh, maybe incorrect parts, confusing instructions, none of it was a user error at all, Uh, hypothetically, but you wanted to quit building the thing, smash it all to pieces, uh, get a new crib, but you actually can't do that because the baby needs somewhere to sleep in like a month, so you have to figure it out. Well, maybe it was a new job, and again, it wasn't just that the work was hard. You actually know and believe that hard things are good, Pushing through difficulty is what causes us to grow, but maybe just the people at work were very difficult. The instruction from management was confusing. Uh, The work was just frustrating. And so maybe you got to a place where you thought, you know what, like there's maybe a better fit for me somewhere else, and you, you quit the job. Well, here in Acts 18, Paul gets to that point. We know that he is not afraid of difficulty. We know that he is not afraid of hard work. We know that tracing his journeys all over the Mediterranean world, we know that he has been stoned, he has been beaten, he has been falsely accused, he has been publicly humiliated. And has any of that stopped him? Has any of that made him want to quit? No, not at all. He either keeps moving throughout the difficulty, even oftentimes coming back to the places of difficulty. He is convinced that Jesus is the king of heaven and of earth, that all people need to hear this announcement of the good news of Jesus being king of heaven and earth. He is willing to put himself in incredibly difficult circumstances to share this good news. But here in Acts 18, the, in the Greek city of Corinth, we see a brand new reaction from Paul. Frustration, exasperation, the desire to just like leave the crib pieces on the floor and find a better crib. But just like Jesus was present, just like Jesus was good for Paul in his difficulty, in his his physical pain and suffering, Jesus here in Acts 18 is present and is good in his frustration, in Paul's exasperation. And not just present and good for more like feel-good fuzzies for Paul, but to urge Paul to keep laboring, to stay, to persevere for the gospel. And so that's how we're going to think through Paul's time in Corinth tonight too. That of laboring for the gospel, staying for the gospel, and persevering for the gospel. Laboring, staying, and persevering for the gospel. So first of all, laboring for the gospel. And in verse 1 of Acts 18, Luke writes, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Well, after what? This feels like forever ago, but if you can, transport your mind and your memory back four weeks, uh, four Sundays ago, when Kyle so helpfully walked us through Paul's preaching at Mars Hill, the the Areopagus in Athens, where Paul was preaching against any kind of philosophy that was devoid of Christ, that a Christless philosophy, a Christless worship, a Christless existence actually runs completely contrary to what we were made for as human beings. Humanity was made to know God through Christ and Christ has now come so that we might know him, Paul announced in Athens. And so after all of that, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Corinth is a big old deal. It's a huge city. 200,000 people or so in the first century living there compared to likely only about 10,000 people living in Athens, which is math majors about 20 times larger than Athens. I found a ridiculously cool video on YouTube this week. If you just search in the YouTube search bar for ancient Corinth, uh, there's a couple of like CGI recreations of the city in the first century. It's amazing of like this first person camera like going in through the city gates and sweeping it through the city streets in between houses, the hundreds and thousands of houses into the Colosseum in Corinth and into the gigantic amphitheater. It is a massive city and this city was also well known for its temple to Aphrodite, to Venus, the goddess of love, There's a temple to Aphrodite that sat high on the the hill, the large hill outside of the city. It's like your entire life that you lived in Corinth would be under the watchful eye of Aphrodite. Your entire life would be lived under the shadow of love. You can perhaps imagine the kind of nightly events and rituals that would have happened at this temple mount and even trickling down into the city. Corinth was so well-known in the Greco-Roman world that all over the Mediterranean, to, quote, act like a Corinthian was to act in or live in exceptional licentiousness. You can certainly even see hints of that in Paul's later letters to the Corinthians, of even these new Christian lives that are now still being lived under the shadow of Aphrodite. But the city sat on this tiny little isthmus. That's a weird word, isthmus, Uh, within the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean Sea on either side of it. Logan, do we have that? Uh, Yeah, if you've got Athens over here, he, he comes over to Corinth and it's just sitting right there on this little tiny strip. There is ocean or sea and ports on either side of Corinth. Massive ports. This was a hugely important commercial city. Uh, Nero actually tried to dig a canal through this isthmus in the first century about this time, but he couldn't get it done. A canal actually didn't get finished until the late 1800s. Want to see it? Logan, you got that? That's bananas. Uh, That's still, that's the way it is. Now these huge shipping container ships just like suck it in really tight and just squeeze through there today. Uh, But continuing our comparison of ancient Mediterranean cities to American cities that we uh, started with Antioch perhaps being LA or Hollywood, Uh, maybe Rome being something like Washington DC today, and Athens of Acts 17 maybe being something like Berkeley, a a small but influential city known for thinking and philosophy. The best that I could come up for Corinth was like Miami. Uh, Maybe Vegas, and it's like licentiousness, but then you lose out on that coastal shipping stuff. So maybe think like Miami in like the height of Miami Vice of the 80s, and this is Corinth. This is the city, Miami Vice, 1987 Miami, that Paul walks into. Just strolls right on in through these massive city gates. And immediately when he walks in, he finds this Jewish couple, a man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla, And Luke tells us that they they too have just shown up in Corinth because they've been kicked out of Rome. We know from secular Roman historians that the emperor Emperor Claudius had kicked out all of the Jews from Rome because there was a growing and really volatile controversy surrounding someone named Crestus, which nearly everyone now understands to be Christ, Christus. Word had already traveled to Rome about Jesus. Paul hadn't gotten there yet. He would later write to the Romans that he would love to get there someday. But word had traveled to Rome about Jesus, the Christ, and the Jews there were likely acting towards these new Christians uh, much in the same way that they were acting and reacting to Paul all over the Mediterranean world. There's Huge volatility amongst the Jewish and/or this now is it a, is it a Jewish sect or is it a splinter group of Christians? The emperor doesn't know, so he just kicks them all out. When they are finally allowed to return, Roman Christians, having now lived without any Jewish Christians, uh, they become very suspicious of these Jewish Christians. So, uh, Paul writes to them a letter explaining the history of salvation and the place of Israel, a letter that we all call Romans, because of the Jews being kicked out and then coming back. This is Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul, he likes this married couple. Presumably, they are already Christians, but also because they too, like Paul, are tent makers. This is the first time we hear or understand or know of Paul's Vocation of making tents. They aren't like making like Coleman pop-up tents or something, but they're likely making huge traveling canvas caravan tents. Paul, it appears, seems to be settling in for a while. He doesn't maybe intend to to be here just for a few days. He's going to work in Corinth to provide for his needs during the week uh, so that he can then, on Saturday, on the Sabbath, go to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and with the Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we're going to be careful for the rest of this sermon, just like we've been careful for the, the whole of the book of Acts, not to necessarily apply something that was true here in the first century of Paul uh, in like an apples-to-apples way to our lives in Albuquerque, but Paul was using his job. He was using his vocation as a means to an end. It was good work. It was necessary and valuable work to the people of Corinth to make these kinds of tents. He was undoubtedly working hard in making a quality product, but his work was not his life. Jesus was. Jesus had so upended his very reason for living. On that day when he confronted him on the road to Damascus, so that later, Paul would say that a man, a man that, that Paul had never met before Jesus' crucifixion, Paul would later say in Galatians that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. On Good Friday, on, on the cross, Jesus gave himself for Paul. Paul had made that universal reality something personally true of himself. Before he had even met Paul, Jesus gave himself, his life and death, on the cross for Paul. In order that Paul's sins, his indifference towards God, his opposition against God, his selfishness, his using of others in his heart or in reality, would all be forgiven by God. That God's justice would be poured out on Jesus on the cross instead of on Paul. And that Jesus' perfect life and love would now be credited. His record of righteousness would be given to Paul. Paul, when just thinking about these things, he, he often will just like lose himself in his train of thought in his later letters and just starts talking and writing about how amazing, how good, how wonderful, how wise, how gracious God is to have enacted this plan of salvation. Not just For hypothetical people out there, but for people personally like himself. And that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty and he rules victoriously over sin and death. Like, are you kidding, Paul? Just asks over and over in his life. Like, making tents is really, really good work. It provides for Paul's clothes, his shelter, perhaps even his occasional entertainment and leisure. All of that is great, but Jesus has loved me and he has given himself for me. His kingdom is breaking into this world, this dead and dying world. Let's go and tell. Let's share this wonderful news that he has made true of me. And now that others might experience and know as well, Paul is laboring for the gospel. That is, he and Aquila and Priscilla are working with an eye toward the conversion, the transformation of these Corinthians. And remember the reputation of what it meant to be a Corinthian. That these Corinthians, living their lives under the shadow of Aphrodite, might be adopted as sons and daughters of God and now live their lives under the shadow of the glorious cross. That is Paul's life and labor. But just like in most of the other cities Paul has preached in, we've probably got a pretty good guess at how this thing is going to go and turn out. And here's where the getting uh, really frustrated, a frustrated desire for a better crib comes in. We've considered him laboring for the gospel, but now staying for the gospel. Now we're not Luke doesn't tell us. We're not sure how long Paul has been in Corinth. But finally, Silas and Timothy catch up and arrive from Thessalonica. And what they find there is the Jewish response to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. The, The news of Jesus of Nazareth being the long and awaited son of David and king is actually very similar to what we've seen all over the Mediterranean world. The Corinthian Jews have opposed and reviled Paul. And so, Paul symbolically takes off his robe, and he shakes off the dust. He is symbolically saying, I am just getting rid of anything of theirs that is now left on me. They don't want Jesus? Fine. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. If you're reading over this, really zooming through or not paying super careful attention to maybe even some of the verses that follow, you might be thinking like this is a real turning point in Paul's ministry. He is turning from the Jews and now going purely to the Gentiles. It sure looks like that's what Paul's thinking is. It looks like he's thinking this project is doomed, and perhaps that is what he's thinking in this day. The crib, the the temple of God, cannot be built with these pieces— I've done all that I can, but these pieces are defective. And many even have read a sentence like this from Paul, an outburst of exasperation, and they have come to even some anti-Semitic conclusions. But the story does not stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't now move only to the Gentiles. Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't now move only to the Gentiles. Paul goes home. He goes next to—he goes to this house. He goes to a, uh, next door to a God-fearer, a Corinthian Gentile, like we saw of Cornelius in chapter 10, a Gentile who had come to worship the God of Israel. Probably that's why he's living next door to the synagogue. And we don't know if there's like some cause and effect thing here. Luke's kind of unclear. But then the very next verse, Crispus, the very ruler of the synagogue, who maybe yesterday— Paul was ready to just like smash up the pieces of Crispus because he's rejecting Christ. Now Crispus himself, the ruler and leader of the synagogue, believes in the Lord. He is brought from death to life by trusting in Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises, even unto eternal life. Despite Paul's frustration, despite his exasperation, Jesus is moving and working in Corinth. So much so, And Jesus is not done yet, so much so that Jesus comes to Paul one night in a dream. Now again, Paul is a personally appointed apostle of Jesus with a personal and specific mission as an apostle, so we shouldn't necessarily expect the same kind of thing, the same kind of dream treatment from Jesus, but Jesus indeed comes to Paul one one night in a vision. Verse 9, he says, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. There are many people in Corinth who are not yet his people, who are not yet Jesus's people as we experience time and space, but whom Jesus knows as his own. So Paul do not be afraid. Do not smash up the crib pieces. Jesus is all about making obstinate pieces, making crooked pieces, making broken pieces into something usable, even into something beautiful, into the very dwelling place of God. Christian, he has certainly, he has patiently Done that with you. But he also desires to do that patiently with others, others who are not yet his people. And what a rush of freedom, what a rush of excitement and renewed energy Paul must have woken up from after that dream. Jesus himself has just told him that many in Corinth will come to believe you just keep doing your job. Paul, of preaching, and I'll do the rest. Jesus has told him, essentially. I will bring my people to myself, but stay. Stay and preach. Now again, Jesus has likely not specifically told you this kind of thing, specifically of your friends or acquaintances here in Albuquerque. And it could be, it could be that not one more person in Albuquerque will ever come to a place of repentance and belief. Not one more person in Albuquerque will ever come to a place of salvation in the name of Jesus. But I doubt it. Jesus is bringing life all over the world. And usually, usually, the level of repentance will often just simply track alongside the level of evangelism. Usually, not always the case. There are certainly times of more difficulty. But the harvest is white. Jesus will bring people unto unto himself. Now, this is not a word from the Lord, but I am very confident that Jesus has many in this city who are not yet his, but who will be. Let's go and tell them. A helpful illustration I've heard throughout the years is if I, if I met you at an airport, I met you at an airport at one of those walls of like quarter lockers, there's thousands of quarter lockers, maybe at a huge airport, and I just give you a key. I gave you the key and told you that in one of these lockers, there is $50,000 cash, you just gotta go find the locker. You would get to work trying to unlock one of those lockers. And if the first five lockers didn't turn, if the first 15, the first 50 lockers didn't open, this would actually not be all that discouraging. It actually should be encouraging. One of these lockers is going to respond to this, this key, and the same is likely true for us in our evangelism. Some will remain locked. Many, many will remain locked. Some will re- remain opposed, hardened, and unresponsive, but many others will open. Many will repent and believe, but we have to try to find out. Jesus will bring his people unto himself. With just a simple proclamation of who Jesus is, of what he has accomplished, and how we can then respond. That's all that is needed. By simply sharing with others, your co-workers or your friends, of what you are learning lately of the Lord. What you are reading lately in the Bible. What you know to be true of God and what he has accomplished in your life through the work of Christ, just by talking about Jesus, just by putting the key in and giving it a little turn. And so Paul stays. He stays, Luke tells us, for a year and a half. He was ready to move on, shake his dust off off his robes and move on. And then he stays for another year and a half to start moving through the lockers. And as we'll find out in later letters, the church grows. The church grows as a result of his staying. It is, it is the work of the triune God to bring salvation, but he accomplishes this through the preaching of his people. And as the M's are here with us tonight, and the C's and the E's are soon to join us later in the summer, Brother, sister, we are praying for you. We are praying for you as you do this difficult and hard work as locker after locker after locker remains closed and locked. Now, people have responded. People have responded to your sharing, to your preaching, to your conversations, to King Jesus in your midst. Praise the Lord for that. But might stories of past saints that I know that you know and love so well be of an encouragement of someone like William Carey who said, expect great things, attempt great things. William Carey who labored in India at the turn of the 1800s for seven years before he first saw someone respond to the gospel. Seven years! I think I'd be frustrated, exasperated, and ready to move on after six months. Seven years before someone repented and came to Christ of someone like Adoniram Judson, who labored and stayed in Burma in the early 1800s for six years before a locker opened. And even now, a resolute Baptist church remains in Myanmar because of his staying, for his laboring for the gospel. This church remains persecuted, but faithful. Labor. Stay. Keep sharing. Keep turning the key. Might we all, in the relationships that God in his providence has put before us? Well, even though I had uh, Michael stop reading at verse 11 this actually isn't where we're going to end tonight. Paul has labored and stayed for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. But now, lastly, we'll see him and the Corinthian church persevering for the gospel. Laboring, staying, and persevering for the gospel. Paul does indeed stay for a year and a half. People come to faith. A church is planted, both Jews and Gentiles all together In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that one of the only people that he actually baptized in Corinth that he personally baptized was Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, right here in Acts 18. But after that, Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians, he's not doing any more of the baptizing. After that, the church and its own people began baptizing, began discipling each other. Paul is guiding and leading and feeding them so that they might one day be able to survive, grow, and flourish without him. But in verse 12, we finally see happen to Paul what's happened to him in so many other cities and towns before. The Jews make a, a united attack against Paul, and they bring him before the tribunal of the city, the Roman tribunal. A guy named Gallio, who we also know is the little brother of Seneca, like The real Seneca. This is Seneca's little brother, Gallio. But they say to Gallio, they say, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. This is the same kind of accusation that the Thessalonians made against Paul in chapter 16, that Paul was disloyal to the emperor, that he is leading people in illegal worship, that he is leading in some kind of revolution. And we don't know how Paul actually responds to Gallio, the proconsul, but judging by the way that he responds by Gal- the way that Gallio responds, and by the way that Paul will later defend and explain his ministry to other Roman leaders, we can probably guess that Paul answered in the same kind of vein that he worships the God of the Jewish fathers. That there will one day be a resurrection from the dead, and the decisive hinge point being for those who are actually going to be found in Jesus, a crucified man in Jerusalem, and those who are not. He is the hinge point of all of human history. This is probably what the kind of thing that Paul responded to Gallio with. And Gallio, playing very much the pilot figure and likely thinking, well, all of that sounds ridiculous— Sounds ridiculous and far-fetched, unlikely, but probably not disloyal. Tells the crowd in verse 14, he says, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things but instead of just accepting this and being totally okay with these new Christians alongside them, the Jewish establishment is furious. They are angered. And again, from the early chapters of Acts, these leaders, like Paul used to be, are actually doing what they think is right, what God would have them do. After all, they're thinking that God is a God of strength. He is a God of victorious triumph. Our God is not a God of weakness, of humiliating crucifixion. Weakness is not a way of God, they think. But as Clint read earlier in the service assuring us of our pardon in Christ, Paul would later write to these Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, of life through death, of power through weakness, He would later write, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, the upside down nature of the kingdom of Christ, where up is down and down is up, but what we thought was down is actually up. We were living in the upside down Christ has made it right. God is glorified with weak, broken, sinful people who are redeemed by a strong Christ. A frail-bodied, dying Jesus, but who is nevertheless sinless, who saves and transforms the weak and the stubborn slowly but surely into his own image. Why? Because he loves them. He who loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says, this is why Jesus has come to transform me into his image, because he has loved me, to make me into a son, for you into a daughter of the most high God if you would just come to him initially in weakness in repentance of the old ways to be made new now living your life in the shadow of the glorious cross an ever growing cross with a more deeply expanding shadow and a more deeply penetrating light but like many of us Often, day to day, here, resolutely, the Jewish establishment is not having it. They knew they'd likely get in trouble with Gallio if they laid hands on Paul. So, verse 17, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, likely a new ruler who also united his life to Christ, and they beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And yet— even still, Paul stays. He perseveres with the people as they learn to persevere with Christ themselves. Persecution from the outside, frustration and exasperation from the inside. Jesus is with them through it all. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And yet Paul has not set out from Jerusalem to become the pastor of the church in Corinth. Jesus has sent him to the nations to share the gospel, to establish and equip churches, and then to move on. And so he does. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. There's talk of a vow and cutting hair and then, I mean, it's just going. If it feels like I'm rushing through the end of this section, well, you don't know the half of it. Luke really, like, puts the pedal to the metal here. In verse 22, Luke actually wraps up Paul's entire second missionary journey, and then in verse 23, he starts Paul's third missionary journey. Verse 21, Paul sets sail from Ephesus in Turkey, and he sails across the Mediterranean in verse 22, and then lands in Caesarea, which is northern Palestine, Israel. And then he went up, remember, up or down. In, when we read it, especially in the book of Acts, up and down doesn't necessarily mean north or south on a map, as we might expect. But up or down means uphill or downhill. He moves, he went up, uphill to Jerusalem. So he went up and he greeted the church of Jerusalem, and then he went back down to Antioch. He went up, ended his second missionary journey, and then he started a new one. He went back to Antioch and then on to Galatia, back to Asia, and we are on the road again. Luke is flying. All of this is barreling towards chapters 18 through 20, where Paul is in Ephesus, where we see perhaps the the healthiest church in the book of Acts, and simultaneously the craziest societal reactions from outside of the church. Luke wants to keep our eyes and our attention moving forward moving outward to new places, to new people, to new belief, to new life, challenging us to keep sharing, to keep trying new lockers, to labor, to stay, to persevere, to move, to always have our eyes on the move, but always fixing our eyes ever upward on the risen Christ who invites people all over the world unto himself. The risen Christ who invites you unto Himself. That you might say with Paul, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That that reality might transform to the uttermost in us and then flow from us. What a gospel! what a kingdom that Jesus is building and breaking into and establishing in this book of Acts and that he continues unto this day might we be part of it might we labor stay and persevere for it let's pray that we might our god we are thankful we are thankful for the ways in which you have established your son Jesus as king as as the victorious and conquering hero of history, as the victorious and conquering hero of our own sin, that he might rescue obstinate, difficult, unwilling, kicking and screaming people into your kingdom, that you might transform us now into willing followers of you, into people of grace, to people empowered by your spirit, into people of weakness, to people of humility, but that we might boast in Christ, that we might preach Christ and Christ crucified. Help us, we pray, keep transforming us individually, keep transforming us as a church to be people of this gospel, to be people of sharing our lives, to be people of sharing our words, with people who have not yet heard. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us the, give us the wherewithal to pray for opportunities tonight and to t- tomorrow, this week, and this summer. Help us to pray for opportunities that you might put in front of us, that we might share this gospel of grace, and then give us the courage. Give us the conviction to actually act upon them when you give them. Help us, we pray. We pray that you might indeed have many in this city and that you might use us, your people, in just a small way. In a small way to observe the transformation life of Christ that we might give great glory to you, O triune God. We pray all these things in the victorious name of Jesus. Amen.
0: We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.